Well, I had a couple of people this morning who saw the title of the message and came up to me and said the answer is yes. You haven't seen it on the front of the bulletin as we're in our This Is Us series. The question is, is singleness really a gift? And I had a couple of them that said, yes, it is a gift. They've discovered something that maybe some people have not yet discovered, and we want to consider that this morning as well. Most of you know that I attended the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I'm a graduate from a great university, a little left of center in social issues and everything, and even in theology, but it was a great time for me there, except for my freshman year, which was a kind of a rough start. But my last two years, I had the privilege of being able to move into an apartment with two guys. It was a three-bedroom apartment. We each had our own bedroom. We had a maid. We were rocking. And the reason we had a maid is because I had one roommate who was just a couple of years older than I, but the other roommate was 92 years old. 92. His name was Rudolph Gilcher, called Rudy. And Rudy uh, had this, he had already started, I discovered this later, he, he, he uh, lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a while, and he had a home, and he actually, he, he had never married, he'd been single all his life, and so he opened up his home when he discovered that the University of Michigan needed places for guys to stay, and so he opened up every bedroom in the house, made a garage apartment, and guys moved in. And so, when he moved to Chapel Hill, and I still hadn't figured out all how he got from Ann Arbor, Michigan, down to Chapel Hill. But when he moved to Chapel Hill, he had an apartment and he rented out two of the bedrooms to guys. So there'd be somebody there, which I assumed at night, but I think it was just the the mode that he was in. This is what he did. He was a really interesting guy. He, uh, again, I don't think he'd ever married. We weren't able to discover that he'd ever married. So he'd been single for over nine decades he had uh, he'd gone to Center College in Danville, Kentucky. Maybe some of our Kentucky people know where that is. He had uh, he joined the Navy, I think, during World War One. Although I haven't been able to figure all those pieces out. He was an entrepreneur. Uh, I found a patent that he had gotten, and he and his brother uh, were um, kind of entrepreneurs up in the Detroit Ann Arbor area. He was also a composer, a pianist. Even in his 90s, he could sit down at the baby grand that was in the den of our apartment. He could sit down and play the piano. And sometimes he did that in the middle of the night. Like I said, it was an interesting time for us. Now, the other guy wasn't quite that interesting nor quite that old. His name was Alex, and he and I became very good friends. I became a Christian my, uh, the beginning of my second freshman year, as Nancy calls it, I became a Christian and committed myself to ministry and Alex was a strong believer. And so we kind of helped one another, iron sharpens iron living there in that apartment. And so we were encouragers and, but we were guys and guys kind of tease each other too, right? And so neither one of us, and I know you're going to find this super, super hard to believe, neither one of us were real ladies men. And botch it. We didn't date a lot, and we really had no long-term prospects for a while. And so we would kid each other because we lived with a guy who'd been single over 90 years that, hey, maybe you have the gift. And if you don't know what the gift is, 
We find it actually in 1 Corinthians 7, and that's where we're going to spend some time today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. We printed the text. We can't cover the entirety of it, so let me encourage you to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as you have the opportunity. But we're going to pick up a few verses at a time and check out and see what God has to say to us this morning. So would you join your hearts with me in prayer as we prepare to open God's Word together. Father God, Would you open our minds and open our hearts that we might receive your truth today and may it change us. Don't leave us the way you found us. Continue to work in us and through us and let your word have its way in us, bringing conviction when we need conviction and comfort when we need comfort. Lord, your word is alive. So our prayer today is that you would help us come alive to it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians seven, we're going to look at the first couple of verses here, which says now for the matters that you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And some of you are like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. So what's going on here? When we read either 1st or 2nd Corinthians, here's what we discover about that church. It had lots of issues. It wasn't just that the computer didn't work at the right time. They had all kinds of issues that they struggled with. And you can see those scattered throughout as Paul is really responding to those issues as time goes on. And uh, Corinth was, was was a neat city. Paul had started a church there. It was a port city, which means people were always coming and going and businesses were booming. It was a wealthy city in the Roman Empire. It was a great place if you're trying to spread the gospel because now you're engaging people from all over the world who may believe and then go back to their home and carry the gospel with them. And so it was kind of a strategic city as far as Paul was concerned. And he stayed there for a year and a half, helping to establish the church, helping to establish strong believers And he had a heart for this church, but they were aggravating. They were like, they were the black sheep of Paul's family. They were the, they were the problem kids. Man, they struggled to get it together. These people who had come, there were, there was a synagogue there. So there were Jewish believers, Jewish who became Christians, but most of the people were pagan and they came from all kinds of weird religions. And when they came to Christ, they really struggled with, how do I bring the Lordship of Christ to bear in my life, kind of what we struggle with today, right? Except they, they started way over there. And so how do I, how does this all fit? And one of the areas that they struggled with was in human sexuality. How do we relate in our sexuality? And that's, that's what Paul is addressing here. Um, there were two main streams of thought. The one predominant stream of thought was that Um, if it feels good, do it. That was pretty much it. It was a very sexualized city. Men, often it was the men in the relationship, uh, they'd be married, but it was perfectly acceptable and expected that they would have sexual relationships outside of their marriage relationship. And so that was going on. We have an instance here that Paul will refer to that where a guy is sleeping with his stepmother and he thinks, well, that's okay because grace covers that. 
Okay, so you see the kind of struggles that Paul was having. In Athens, in Corinth, there was a temple to the goddess Athena. She is the goddess of beauty and love. And by love, they meant sex. There were temple prostitutes. And the way you'd worshipped, it was uh, not Athena, it was Aphrodite. The way you worshipped Aphrodite was to go to the temple, make your offering, and then sleep with one of the temple prostitutes. Most of which were slaves that were brought in, many of whom were underage girls and boys. What you're getting here is a picture of a, a, a free-for-all, uh, an Amsterdam. Uh, some people have called it Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Well, this was, this was the kind of thing that, this was the predominant way of thinking. Now, there was a counter to that. And the counter is actually what Paul quotes here is something that was being said. In other words, Hey, this city is wicked, 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 wicked sexually. Therefore, you shouldn't even touch a woman. Men and women should have nothing to do with each other. You should be completely, just just absolutely celibate. Leave them alone. Sex is bad, bad, bad. So these are the two ways of thinking. And this is the thing that Paul addresses here, uh, where this, this thing that they've said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So you had those people who were no rules and those people who were like, they were ascetics. No sex, no sex, no anything. As a matter of fact, anything pleasurable, get rid of it. Wear rough clothes, have hard furniture if you have furniture, don't eat rich foods, don't go to fancy restaurants, don't have, you know, the intimate relationships with another person just avoid that all together all right now that's kind of setting the table in these first two verses for what's going on let's pick up there in verse three if you've got it it says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife this is paul responding to what was said and likewise the wife to her husband the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. In other words, he's not saying you have to. He's just saying, listen, we need to, let's think about this thing. In a city... Where sex is up here and it's preeminent, temptation's up here too. And so if you're married, there's a good place to contain what God has given as a gift. In this clash of cultures, this clash of ideas about human sexuality. Now, I want you to notice something here. There are a lot of people that look at the Bible and they go, oh, the Bible is just so patriarchal and just, you know, keeps women under your thumb kind of thing. But that is not what is being taught here. What's being taught here is, listen, in a patriarchal society, the woman was there to make sure that the guy was happy. That was, that was your role. And Paul does say that women shouldn't, hey, don't, de- don't deprive your husbands. Look after your husband's needs. But it also says here that husbands, your responsibility is to look after the needs of your wife. 
It is a mutual um, a yielding to one another, a mutual responsibility for one another. It's not about taking, it's about giving and receiving. And so this is kind of an interesting thing. And so Paul is dealing with the absence of total abstinence. He's saying, you know what, that's wrong. But he says it's also wrong if you have this sexual free-for-all in your city, that there are no rules, no guidelines, no place for sexuality. And I want to tell you, the Bible does have a place for sexuality. It's between the husband and the wife. That's where it belongs. That's the way God has designed it to be. And it's good. Within the, that context, it is good. So now we're getting a picture of the life at Corinth and what Paul's trying to deal with in the Corinthian church. You've got some people who have no self-control at all and other people who say, okay, because of that, we need to go the exact opposite way and we need to just say, hey, don't even touch each other. Just stay, stay far, far away. But what about this gift? Well, he gets to it here in verse 7. And it says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Here's the deal. Paul's single. There are some Bible scholars that think he may have been a widower. And many who think that he had never been married at all. Either way, he was a single guy. And what Paul's saying in the midst of all this stuff that we're dealing with here, in honesty, man, it would just make life so much easier if you were single like me. If you, and as a matter of fact, being single is a gift. Now, for some of you, who are married, you go, I, I don't understand that. I don't see how that fits. For some of you who are eager to be married, you may say, I don't understand that. I don't know how that, how that fits. But singleness is an opportunity that God gives to some, for some a very lengthy period of time, for others a much shorter period of time. But Paul's going to help us to understand what it is that we're to do with our singleness, no matter how long we're single. Now you go, okay, if I'm married, I can tune out. And I want to encourage you not to, because I think this will be helpful for all of us. Now, in the Jewish mindset, this concept of being single would have been really out of whack. Okay? That's not how Jewish people thought. That is not the Jewish mindset. Think about it. God looked at Adam in the garden and said, it is not good for man to be alone. So he created for Adam a helper, someone to come alongside him named Eve. And he gave them a command. Some of you know what the command is. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, I won't go into the details on that. But that is the command. Procreate. Have kids. Fill the earth. When God came to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you a nation, a people. I'm going to give you a people. You're going to have kids, 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 kids. Look at the stars, count them in the sky. I'll give you more than that. Look at the sand on the shishu. I'll give you more than that. And so the promise of God 
was tied to the growth of the people, the continuation of the people, the expansion of the nation. It was tied to procreation. And it was so important that we read in Deuteronomy 25, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears will carry on that name of the dead brother so that the name will not be blotted out from Israel. Listen, it was so important that the name get carried on, that the lineage get carried on, that kids come along, that if your brother died and he was married and didn't have kids, it was your responsibility to take her as your wife too and to have kids for your brother through her. Well, can you see that they're taking procreation and having kids pretty seriously? And so what Paul would say here would be absolutely revolutionary. I wish that everybody was like me, single, because there are going to be advantages to being single. You see, singles are also called to be fruitful and multiply. And don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. With the coming of Jesus and the new covenant in his blood, God's people, they still increase by procreation. But they're called to increase by evangelism. Nicodemus, a man steeped in Jewish tradition, comes to Jesus at night. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And he talks to Nicodemus about a spiritual birth. That's what we discover this is all about. That is what the Great Commission is all about. It is about spiritual birth, a family that's not tied together because um, you have the, the same family tree, but a family that is brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we become brothers and sisters, part of God's family, not because of our family lineage, our family heritage, but because we believe. Because God has become our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a kingdom based on being born again. And to be part of it, you must be born again. It's not enough to have parents who were Christian or grandparents who were Christian. Each person must choose Christ for themselves. Embrace Christ for themselves. You can't rely on the lineage past. It has to do with faith. We come into the family of God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and no other way. But you may be wondering still, how is being single advantageous? Paul helps us. If you skip down to verse 32... We all, we, again, I'll encourage you to go back and read all of 1 Corinthians 7 yourself. But for the sake of this message, skip down to 32. We, here's where we, uh, we read. 
Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. He goes on in verse 35. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Let me give you an example. Before I was married, if I wanted to buy something and I had the money, I bought it. We didn't have to have a Dave Ramsey family meeting. If I wanted it, I got it. Why? Because I didn't have to answer to a wife. I didn't have to provide for kids. I didn't have to think, oh, the kids are going to need braces. I didn't have to think, you know, my wife has got to go to the doctor. She's probably going to need new prescription glasses. I didn't have to think, hey, school's coming up. Got school clothes to buy. Got books to buy. Got all these things to buy. I didn't have to think about any of that stuff. The only guy I had to worry about was Jimmy. If I wanted to go somewhere one weekend, I just went. I didn't think, oh, well, I I better check with Nancy and make sure that's okay before I go to this men's conference or before I go to the beach or wherever. I just went. Now, there are restrictions that kind of come to your life when you're married. I'm not going to go out and say, uh, you know, buy a new riding lawnmower without having a family meeting. I'm not going to go spend that kind of money without talking to Nancy. Now, it's okay. I'm not talking to you every time I go to McDonald's and get a cheeseburger. I, we don't have a family meeting about that. But, but there are things that, that I just don't, I don't spend that money without consulting. There are places that I don't go without talking it over. There's a men's conference coming up. Some of the guys are going to be going to in a couple weekends. And, you know, that's, that's a matter. Hey, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Got to keep there. There are things that kind of, I don't mean tie you down in a bad way, but there are strings attached now that weren't attached when I was single. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's saying, listen, there are advantages if you're single. If the Lord, if you feel burdened by God to pack up and go to Detroit and to work in a mission for a year, yeah, you may have to quit your job or get a sabbatical or do something like that, but... Who's going to stop you? You don't have to worry. Hey, I got a wife, I got kids, and I don't want to leave them. And what's going to happen to them? You just go. If you want to go on a mission trip, you just go. If you can, if, if you can swing it, you go. If you've got money in your pocket and you see a, a family that needs help, or you got money in your pocket and a missionary comes in and you feel burdened, hey, I need to give to this missionary. You just give. And this is what Paul's trying to say. There are things that. Free you up when you're single that are a little more restrictive when you're married. And and please don't go away from this message saying that I'm calling marriage a ball and chain because it's not. It's a blessing to be married. But Paul says, listen, for the sake of the kingdom, the urgency of the gospel, I wish that everybody were like me. And we didn't have those 
encumbrances or what, what Paul calls here undivided devotion. We have undivided devotion. Before that, my devotion is divided. It's divided between my kids and my wife and my responsibilities. But if I were a single man, and I don't want to be, but in Paul's view, being single has that advantage. Now listen, in the culture we live in, as well as in that culture, um, singleness was something that, man, you want to avoid that at all costs. There's a stigma to it. There must be something wrong with me if I'm single. Nobody wants me. Nobody (laughs) cares about me. And then then movies like uh, uh, Jerry Maguire come out where you have Tom Cruise use this line, this melt your heart line. You complete me. Oh, listen, all these girls just kind of just melt. Oh, if some guy would just tell me, oh, you complete me. And I understand, listen, I understand that there is a sense in which Nancy completes me and I complete Nancy, that there's that sense. But in the ultimate sense, there's only one who completes us. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's the only one who can complete us. And if we are not complete with Him, we certainly are not going to be complete without Him. And that's what Paul's trying to get across here. Listen, it is Jesus who completes us. And so if you're desperately seeking Mr. or Miss Right, Paul says, hey, put on the brakes. You are not defective. You are not dysfunctional because you are single. You are not diseased. You're not a leper because you're single. Consider for a moment, he would say, the advantages that you have now that you couldn't have if you were married. The Census Bureau says that there are 109 million single adults in the United States. Those who are divorced, widowed, or have never been married. 109 million. And I have no idea how many of that 109 million are believers in Jesus Christ. But I believe Paul would say to each of them who is, look at your singleness not as a curse. But as a gift, and as long as it lasts, use it for the kingdom of God. Imagine that would dif- the difference it would make in your own attitude towards singleness if you thought about it like that. Imagine the difference it would make for the kingdom of God if we thought about it like that. Now I'm going to try to land the plane because I got three applications I want to share with you because I think we can learn something from this whether we are single or married, or married with kids, or single with kids. There's stuff we can learn from this, all of us. And so let me share. Here are the three. If you're married, leverage your marriage for the kingdom of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians that marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. In other words, in your marriage, foster that image. Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Guys, that's your call. Married men, that's your call. 
Women, you're to reflect the body of Christ in that you are to submit to your husband's leadership and you are to respect him. We're painting a picture for the world. Leverage that. Use your marriage for the glory of God. Model to the world what a Christian marriage can be. If you're married and you have children, then I would say, and I believe Paul would say, leverage your family for the kingdom of God. Grow in your faith and help your family to grow in their faith. And guys, here, I'm going to put it on you again. Remember, we we went to the woodshed last week. We're going to go back. You guys, husbands, dads, are responsible to God for how you lead your family spiritually. If they, have, if they wander off, listen, I'm not saying that's your fault. I'm just saying your responsibility, your responsibility, your responsibility is in leading your kids to Christ, your wife in Christ, and growing them up in Christ to the very best of your ability as God gives you the strength. That's your responsibility. And God's going to look at you on the day of judgment and say, what did you do with the family that I entrusted to you spiritual head of the family. In other words, if you're married with kids, model for the world what a Christian family can be. I think we got a little bit of a model today as Caden come up and did what many of you would be shaking in your boots if you were asked to do, and that's come up here and to share a scripture that you have memorized. That's a beautiful picture. The third application is this. If you're single, whether you got kids or not, if you're single, then leverage your singleness for the kingdom of God. Don't get obsessed with finding the guy, the girl. Don't get depressed because you haven't found the guy or the girl. Whether you're single, engaged, dating, whether you've been married before and are now single, You need to understand that marriage is good, but it is not ultimate. That does not complete you. Model for the world what it means to be a sold out, committed, content follower of Jesus. This morning, about 2.30, I woke up. That's not, I don't typically wake up in the middle of the night. That's not a normal thing for me, but I woke up and I woke up with a deep sense of, I wouldn't call it dread, but I woke up with this heavy weight on me. I think it may have been kind of the lingering effects of going over the message at night and this idea of leveraging wherever you are in life for the kingdom of God. And I began to ask myself, hey, hey, Jimmy, are you, are you doing that now? Are you putting everything on the line for Jesus? Are you, are you giving it everything you got? And I began to think of ways that, and times where I didn't where opportunities presented themselves and for the love of comfort or for the love of ease, 
I chose that direction and instead of laying it on the line for Christ. And quite honestly, when we stand before God, that's the only thing that's going to matter. The things that we did apart from Christ, they're gone. They don't matter. The kind of house I lived in doesn't matter. The kind of car I drove doesn't matter. The kind of clothes I wore doesn't matter. The only thing that will matter is, hey, listen, did you trust my son Jesus? And what did you do with that in which I entrusted to you? Well, I hear well done, my good and faithful servant. And one of the things I recognize is that every week I have an opportunity given to me. An opportunity to take God's word, to break it down into understandable pieces and to put it back together in a way that honors the truth, but communicates it. But I also have another opportunity. And that's an opportunity to invite people to come discover the Savior that I know. A Savior who in the midst of the turmoil that life can somehow gets, get in becomes a calm. A peace that is beyond all understanding that guards both my heart and my mind. A Savior who can meet me at 2.30 in the morning as I lay in my bed and I pour out my heart to God and I search my soul with God and I confess and I repent and I begin again over and over again and a Savior who's right there with me, who never leaves me, never turns his back on me, continues to love me even when I fail him miserably. He's always there. A Savior who holds my soul in the palm of his nail-scarred hands, who paid the price for me because he loved me, not because I deserved it, but purely because he loves me. And he wants me. He desires me. He chose me. And in the midst of all the, the struggle that took place, There's a peace that came. And I discovered that even at 2.30 in the morning, His mercies are new every morning. And great is His faithfulness. Now here's a question I have for you. Do you know that? Is that your story? Do you know a God who is faithful and a Savior who loves you so much that He would die on a cross willingly for your sins? If you don't know Him, today you can. And I'd like to help you know Him. If the Holy Spirit of God has convicted your heart and you understand that right now, You need Jesus more than anything else. Then I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer. 
And for those of you who know, hey, I know Jesus holds me in the palm of his hand. I know it. Then I'll ask as, as, as I pray with those who don't know it, that you would pray for those that you know who don't know Jesus either. And so I'm going to ask everybody, if you don't mind, just, just close your eyes right where you are. And I'm going to ask you to leave them closed until I ask you to open them up. There's nothing magic going to happen, don't worry. But there may be something powerful that happens. If you're here today and you need Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and you've never received Him, you've never invited Him in, but today the Holy Spirit spoke into your heart, and you know that He's drawing you, then I'm going to ask you just to pray a simple prayer. And you can use the exact words I use, or you can change them up a little bit, but... Let the meaning be there. And it would go something like this. Heavenly Father, I have heard your truth and I'm convicted. I feel guilt over my sin. I can't fix it. But I believe you sent your son to die on a cross to pay the price for my sin to fix what I can't fix to make me whole again to complete me Jesus thank you for loving me and dying for me I trust in you today I turn my back on self and selfishness. I turn my back on my sin. And I come to you as my Savior. Thank you for hearing my prayer. For saving me. For making me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.